Section 4 of Gray's Anatomy, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M.L. Cohen. Anatomy of the Human Body, Part 4 by Henry Gray. Development of the Nervous System, Part 2. The Midbrain or Mesencephalon. The midbrain exists for a time as a thin-walled cavity of some size and is separated from the isthmus rhombencephali behind and from the forebrain in front by slight constrictions. Its cavity becomes relatively reduced in diameter and forms the cerebral aqueduct of the adult brain. Its basal laminae increase in thickness to form the cerebral peduncles, which are at first of small size, but rapidly enlarge after the fourth month. The neuroblasts of these laminae are grouped in relation to the sides and floor of the cerebral aqueduct and constitute the nuclei of the ocular motor and trochlear nerves and of the mesencephalic root of the trigeminal nerve. By a similarly thickening process, its alar laminae are developed into the quadrigeminal lamina. The dorsal part of the wall for a time undergoes expansion and presents an internal median furrow and a corresponding external ridge. These, however, disappear and the latter is replaced by a groove. Subsequently, two oblique furrows extend medialward and backward, and the thickened lamina is thus subdivided into the superior and inferior colliculi. The forebrain or prosencephalon. A transverse section of the early forebrain shows the same parts as are displayed in similar sections of the medulla spinalis and medulla oblongata. That is, a pair of thick lateral walls connected by thin floor and roof plates. Moreover, each lateral wall exhibits a division into dorsal or alar and a ventral or basal lamina separated internally by a furrow termed the sulcus of Monroe. This sulcus ends anteriorly at the medial end of the optic stalk and in the adult brain is retained as a slight groove extending backward from the interventricular foramen to the cerebral aqueduct. At a very early period, in some animals before the closure of the cranial part of the neural tube, two lateral diverticula, the optic vesicles appear, one on either side of the forebrain. For a time, they communicate with the cavity of the forebrain by relatively wide openings. The peripheral parts of the vesicles expand, while the proximal parts are reduced to tubular stalks, the optic stalks. The optic vesicles give rise to the retina and the epithelium on the back of the ciliary body and iris. The optic stalk is invaded by nerve fibers to form the optic nerve. The forebrain then grows forward, and from the alar lamina of this front portion, the cerebral hemispheres originate as diverticula, which rapidly expand to form two large pouches, one on either side. The cavities of these diverticula are rudiments of the lateral ventricles. They communicate with the median part of the forebrain cavity by relatively wide openings, which ultimately form the interventricular foramen. The median portion of the wall of the forebrain vesicle consists of a thin lamina, the lamina terminalis, which stretches from the interventricular foramen to the recess at the base of the optic stalk. The anterior part of the forebrain, including the rudiments of the cerebral hemispheres, is named a telencephalon, and its posterior portion is termed a diencephalon. Both of these contribute to the formation of the third ventricle. The diencephalon. From the alar lamina of the diencephalon, 
the thalamus, metathalamus, and epithalamus are developed. The thalamus arises as a thickening which involves the anterior two-thirds of the alar lamina. The two thalami are visible for a time on the surface of the brain, but are subsequently hidden by the cerebral hemispheres which grow backward over them. The thalami extend medialward and gradually narrow the cavity between them into a slit-like aperture which forms the greater part of the third ventricle. Their medial surfaces ultimately adhere in part to each other, and their intermediate mass of the ventricle is developed across the area of contact. The metathalamus comprises the geniculate bodies, which originate as slight outward bulgings of the alar lamina. In the adult, the lateral geniculate body appears as an eminence on the lateral part of the posterior end of the thalamus, while the medial is situated on the lateral aspect of the midbrain. The epithalamus includes the pineal body, the posterior commissure, and the trigone habenula. The pineal body arises as an upward evagination of root plate immediately in front of the midbrain. This evagination becomes solid with the exception of its proximal part, which persists as the recessus pinealis. In lizards, the pineal evagination is elongated into a stalk, and its peripheral extremity is expanded into a vesicle in which a rudimentary lens and retina are formed. The stalk becomes solid and nerve fibers make their appearance in it, so that in these animals the pineal body forms a rudimentary eye. The posterior commissure is formed by the ingrowth of fibers into the depression behind and below the pineal evagination, and the trigonum habenule is developed in front of the pineal recess. From the basal laminae of the diencephalon, the pars mammillaris hypothalami is developed. This comprises the corpora mammillaria and the posterior part of the tuber sinearum. The corpora mammillaria arise as a single thickening, which comes divided into two by a median furrow during the third month. The roof plate of the diencephalon, in front of the pineal body, remains thin and epithelial in character, and is subsequently invaginated by the choroid plexus of the third ventricle. The telencephalon. This consists of a median portion and two lateral diverticula. The median portion forms the anterior part of the cavity of the third ventricle and is closed below and in front by the lamina terminalis. The lateral diverticula consists of outward pouchings of the alar laminae. The cavities represent the lateral ventricles and their walls become thickened to form the nervous matter of the cerebral hemispheres. The roof plate of the telencephalon remains thin and is continuous in front with the lamina terminalis and behind with the roof plate of the diencephalon. In the basal lamina and the foreplate, the pars optica hypothalami is developed. This comprises the anterior part of the tuber sinearum, the infundibulum, and the posterior lobe the hypophysis and the optic chiasma. The anterior part of the tuber sinearum is developed from the posterior part of the floor of the telencephalon, the infundibulum, and posterior lobe of the hypothesis arises as a downward diverticulum from the floor. The most dependent part of the diverticulum becomes solid and forms the posterior lobe of the hypothesis. The anterior lobe of the hypothesis is developed from a diverticulum of the ectodermal lining of the stomadium. The optic chiasma is formed by the meeting and partial decussation of the optic nerves, which subsequently grow backward as the optic tracts and end in the diencephalon. 
the cerebral hemispheres arise as diverticula of the alar lamina of the telencephalon. They increase rapidly in size and ultimately overlap the structures developed from the mid and hind brains. This great expansion of the hemispheres is a characteristic feature of the brains of mammals and attains its maximum development in the brain of man. Elliot Smith divides each cerebral hemisphere into three fundamental parts, that is, the rhinencephalon, the corpus striatum, and the neopallium. The rhinencephalon represents the oldest part of the telencephalon and forms almost the whole of the hemisphere in fishes, amphibians, and reptiles. In man, it is feebly developed in comparison with the rest of the hemisphere and comprises the following parts, that is, the olfactory lobe, consisting of the olfactory tract and bulb and trigonum olfactorium, the anterior perforated substance, the septum pellucidum, the subcolossal, supercolossal, and dentate gyri, the fornix, the hippocampus, and the uncus. The rhinencephalon appears as a longitudinal elevation with a corresponding internal furrow on the undersurface of the hemisphere close to the lamina terminalis. It is separated from the lateral surface of the hemisphere by a furrow, the external rhinal fissure, and is continuous behind with that part of the hemisphere which will ultimately form the anterior end of the temporal lobe. The elevation becomes divided by a groove into an anterior and a posterior part. The anterior grows forward as a hollow stalk, the lumen of which is continuous with the anterior part of the ventricular cavity. During the third month, the stalk becomes solid and forms the rudiment of the olfactory bulb and tract. A strand of gelatinous tissue in the interior of the bulb indicates the position of the original cavity. From the posterior part, the anterior perforated substance and the piriform lobe are developed. At the beginning of the fourth month, the latter forms a curved elevation continuous behind with the medial surface of the temporal lobe and consisting from before backwards of the gyrus olfactorius lateralis, gyrus ambiens, and gyrus semilunaris, parts which in the adult brain are represented by the lateral root of the olfactory tract and the uncus. The position and connections of the remaining portions of the rhinencephalon are described with the anatomy of the brain. The corpus striatum appears in the fourth week as a triangular thickening of the floor of the telencephalon between the optic recess and the interventricular foramen and continues behind with the thalamic part of the diencephalon. It increases in size and by the second month is seen as a swelling in the floor of the furtier lateral ventricle. This swelling reaches as far as the posterior end of the primitive hemisphere and when this part of the hemisphere grows backward and downward to form the temporal lobe, the posterior part of the corpus striatum is carried into the roof of the inferior horn of the ventricle, where it is seen as a tail of the caudate nucleus in the adult brain. During the fourth and fifth month, the corpus striatum becomes incompletely subdivided by the fibers of the internal capsule into two masses, an inner, the caudate nucleus, and an outer, the lentiform nucleus. In front, the corpus striatum is continuous with the anterior perforated substance. Laterally, it is confluent for a time with that portion of the wall of the vesicle which is developed into the insula, but this continuity is subsequently interrupted by the fibers of the external capsule. The neopallium forms the remaining and by far the greater part of the cerebral hemisphere. It consists as an early stage of a relatively large, more or less hemispherical cavity, the primitive lateral ventricle, enclosed by a thin wall from which the cortex of the hemisphere is developed. 
The vesicle expands in all directions, but more especially upward and backward, so that by the third month, the hemispheres cover the diencephalon, by the sixth they overlap the midbrain, and by the eighth the hindbrain. The median lamina uniting the two hemispheres does not share in their expansion, and thus the hemispheres are separated by a deep cleft, the forerunner of the longitudinal fissure, and this cleft is occupied by a septum of mesodermal tissue which constitutes the primitive Falk cerebri. Coincidentally with the expansion of the vesicle, its cavity is drawn out into three prolongations which represent the horn of the future lateral ventricle. The hinder end of the vesicle is carried downward and forward and forms the inferior horn. The posterior horn is produced somewhat later and associated with the backward growth of the occipital lobe of the hemisphere. The roof plate of the primitive forebrain remains thin and of an epithelial character. It is invaginated into the lateral ventricle along the median wall of the hemisphere. This invagination constitutes the choroidal fissure and extends from the interventricular foramen to the posterior end of the vesicle. Mesodermal tissue, continuous to that of the primitive Fox cerebri and carrying blood vessels with it, spreads between the two layers of the invaginated fold and forms the rudiment of the telochoroidea. The margins of the tela become highly vascular and form the choroid plexuses, which for some months almost completely fill the ventricular cavities. The tela at the same time invaginates the epithelial roof of the diencephalon to form the choroid plexuses of the third ventricle. By the downward and forward growth of the posterior end of the vesicle to form the temporal lobe, the choroidal fissure finally reaches from the interventricular foramen to the extremity of the inferior horn of the ventricle. Parallel with, but above and in front of the choroidal fissure, the median wall of the cerebral vesicle becomes folded outward and gives rise to the hippocampal fissure on the median surface and to a corresponding elevation, the hippocampus within the ventricular cavity. The gray or ganglionic covering of the wall of the vesicle ends at the inferior margin of the fissure, is a thickened edge. Beneath this, the marginal reticular layer, future white substance, is exposed and its lower thinned edge is continuous with the epithelial vagination covering the choroid plexus. As a result of the later downward and forward growth of the temporal lobe, the hippocampal fissure and the parts associated with it extend from the interventricular foramen to the end of the inferior horn of the ventricle. The thickened edge of gray substance becomes the gyrus dentatus, the fasciola cinerea, and the supra and subcolossal gyri while the free edge of the white substance forms the fimbria hippocampi and the body and crews of the fornix. The corpus callosum is developed within the arch of the hippocampal fissure, and the upper part of the fissure forms in the adult brain the colossal fissure on the medial surface of the hemisphere. The commissures. The development of the posterior commissure has already been referred to. The gray commissures of the hemisphere that is, the corpus callosum, the fornix, and the anterior commissures, arise from the lamina terminalis. About the fourth month, a small thickening appears in this lamina, immediately in front of the interventricular foramen. The lower part of this thickening is soon constricted off, and fibers appear in it to form the anterior commissure. The upper part continues to grow with the hemispheres and is invaded by two sets of fibers. Transverse fibers, extending between the hemispheres, pass into its dorsal part, which is now differentiated as the corpus callosum. In rare cases, the corpus callosum is not developed. Into the ventral part, longitudinal fibers from the hippocampus 
passed to the lamina terminalis and through that structure to the corpora mammillaria. These fibers constitute the fornix. A small portion lying anteroinferiorly between the corpus callosum and the fornix is not invaded by the commissural fibers. It remains thin and later a cavity, the cavity of the septum pellucidum, forms in its interior. Fissures and sulci. The outer surface of the cerebral hemispheres is at first smooth, but later it exhibits a number of elevations or convolutions, separated from each other by fissures and sulci, most of which make their appearance during the sixth or seventh month of fetal life. The term fissure is applied to such grooves as involve the entire thickness of the cerebral wall and thus produce corresponding eminences in the ventricular cavity, while the sulci affect only the superficial part of the wall and therefore leave no impression in the ventricle. The fissures comprise the choroidal and hippocampal already described and two others, that is the calcarine and collateral, which produce the swellings known respectively as the calcar avis and the collateral eminence in the ventricular cavity. Of the sulci, the following may be referred to, that is the central sulcus, fissure of Rolando, which is developed in two parts, the intraparietal sulcus in four parts, and the cingulate sulcus in two or three parts. The lateral cerebral or sylvian fissures differs from all the other fissures in its mode of development. It appears about the third month as a depression, the sylvian fossa, on the lateral surface of the hemisphere. This fossa corresponds with the position of the corpus striatum and its floor is molded to form the insula. The intimate connection which exists between the cortex of the insula and the subjacent corpus striatum prevents this part of the hemisphere wall from expanding at the same rate as the portions which surround it. The neighboring parts of the hemisphere therefore gradually grow over and cover in the insula and constitute the temporal, parietal, frontal, and orbital opercula of the adult brain. The frontal and orbital opercula are the last to form, but by the end of the first year after birth, the insula is completely submerged by the approximation of the opercula. The fissures separating the opposed margins of the opercula constitute the composite lateral cerebral fissure. If a section across the wall of the hemisphere about the sixth week be examined microscopically, it will be found to consist of a thin marginal or reticular layer, a thick ependymal layer, and a thin intervening mantle layer. Neuroblasts from the ependymal and mantle layers migrate into the deep part of the marginal layer and form the cells of the cerebral cortex. The nerve fibers, which form the underlying white substance of the hemispheres, consist at first of outgrowth from the cells of the corpora striata and the thalami. Later, the fibers from the cells of the cortex are added. Medulation of these fibers begins about the time of birth and is continuous until puberty. A summary of these parts, derived from the brain vesicles, is given in the following table. The hindbrain or rhombencephalon give rise to the myelencephalon, metencephalon, and isthmus rhombencephali. The myelencephalon gives rise to the medulla oblongata and lower part of the fourth ventricle, the metencephalon to the pons cerebellum and intermediate part of the fourth ventricle, and the isthmus rhombencephali, the anterior medullary vellum, brachium conjunctiva cerebelli, and upper part of the fourth ventricle. The midbrain, or mesencephalon, gives rise to the cerebral peduncles, lamina quadrigemina, 
and cerebral aqueduct. The forebrain, or prosencephalon, gives rise to the diencephalon and telencephalon. The diencephalon gives rise to the thalamus, metathalamus, epithalamus, pars mammillaris hypothalami, and the posterior part of the third ventricle. The telencephalon gives rise to the anterior part of the third ventricle, pars optica hypothalami, cerebral hemispheres, lateral ventricles, and interventricular foramina. The cranial nerves. With the exception of the olfactory, optic, and acoustic nerves, which will be especially considered, the cranial nerves are developed in a similar manner to the spinal nerves. The sensory or afferent nerves are derived from the cells of the ganglion rudiments of the neural crest. The central processes of these cells grow into the brain and form the roots of the nerves, while the peripheral processes extend outward and constitute their fibers of distribution. It has been seen, in considering the development of the medulla oblongata, that the tractus solitarius, derived from the fibers which grow inward from the ganglion rudiments of the glossopharyngeal and vagus nerves, is the homologue of the oval bundle in the cord, which had its origin in the posterior nerve roots. The motor, or efferent nerves, arises outgrowths of the neuroblast situated in the basal lamina of the mid and hindbrain. While, however, the spinal motor nerve roots arise in one series from the basal lamina, the cranial motor nerves are grouped into two sets, according as they spring from the medial or lateral parts of the basal lamina. To the former set belong the ocular motor, trochlear, abducent, and hypoglossal nerves. To the latter, the accessory and motor fibers of the trigeminal, facial, glossopharyngeal, vagus nerves. End of section 4